Do you ever want to watch a bad movie? Do you ever hate yourself so much that you want to put on a movie that makes you want to rip out your own eyeballs? Hello and welcome to the worst movies ever. Probably. My name is Dottie James and I am terrified of horror films. And I'm Patty Walters and I love horror films, but not these horror films. These are shit. Yeah, we decided to compromise and watch really, really bad horror films and talk about them on this podcast. So there are three things that I say at the beginning of every single one of these podcasts. The first is that tomorrow is Halloween and I get it. We all want to be outside having fun or partying inside with our friends, but we must party alone this year. Uh, Be sensible, be responsible, keep yourself and others in mind this Halloween. Uh, Secondly, the 3rd of November is a very, very important election. And if you can do like I have, please, please vote. And thirdly, On this podcast, we spoil every single second of these films. So if you have not yet seen Alone in the Dark or House of the Dead and you would like them not spoiled, then do not listen to this podcast. And also, when appropriate, we like to talk about trigger warnings on this podcast. And there are some mentions of suicide throughout these films and also lots of mentions of zombies. So if you don't want to hear about those things, then maybe this isn't the podcast for y'all. Today, we are watching and talking about two bad horror films, specifically Alone in the Dark from 2005 and House of the Dead from 2003, both filmed by Uwe Boll, both based on video games, both not entirely great. We're going to be talking about both of these films with our good friend, director Luke Cutforth. You can find him on Twitter at Luke Cutforth. (laughs) He's a sweetie. We like him. But with all that said, let's jump into the episode. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. How are you this fine evening? I was going to say the day of the week, but I don't know what the day of the week is. <laughs> well, I'm better than when I spent time watching these films in preparation. Ah, uh, yes. Good to um, hear. I'm familiar with the feeling. Yes. Not that they weren't absolutely a tour de force, but there were some moments of pain, some tears, and some sort of Wondering what the hell I'm doing with my life and why someone won't give me $10 million to make a film. (laughs) Right. What the hell? So this is the first double episode in the sense that we're talking about two films by one director. Uh, We're talking about the 2005 Alone in the Dark and the 2003 House of the Dead. Both films based on video games, both directed by Uwe Boll. Both very bad. Both very bad. I do want to share what Dottie (laughs) said to me uh, on the phone call (laughs) in preparation for this. Dottie said to me, "Uh, we just want to check because you want to be a director and you want to work in this industry. um, The director of these films has been known to challenge his critics to boxing matches. um, And we just want to know if you're okay with that. (laughs) And I looked this up. It's a real thing. Some of these boxing matches actually went ahead. They did. And he, he won four out of four of the first boxing matches. Luke, that was a legitimate concern of Patty's, so much <laughs> so that this morning I had to reassure him that you are happy to criticize these You have no idea, films. Luke, how personally responsible <laughs> I will feel if you have to box this man. Okay, well, look, what I replied when asked this was, I don't 
have such tiny willy syndrome <laughs> that if I am challenged to a boxing match, I will feel the need to accept. <laughs> I also think that in the challenge, this is a thing I feel about with YouTube boxing matches as well, is that, now look, I don't want to be beaten up by KSI and I will lose in that fight if he challenges <laughs> right. me and yeah. I accept it. But right. yeah. I do think that settling whether someone's right by a physical altercation doesn't prove anything and it actually it actually suggests that deep down you think the other person is right <laughs> sure because it's like i'm going to prove you wrong and in order to prove you wrong i'm going to beat you up yeah. and if i beat you up successfully that will mean uh, you were wrong which it doesn't mean that i'll just go on the record now these films are not good but, and i tried i tried to find some good in them. I really did. I've got five pages of notes <laughs> that I've written and, and there's just no redeeming quality. Oh, that's incredible. Oh, I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased. It's so sanity inducing to do this podcast with you who is a massive fan of terrible films. Yeah, I enjoyed but then, both these movies. But then to, to meet other people who also do not enjoy these experiences is very fun for me yeah no i yeah i am aware that these are bad films but i enjoyed both of them they brought me joy and i would watch them again that's, that's a very thing. special thing to be able to get that much joy from these terrible films i got well i got joy from alone in the dark not gonna lie i did get some joy from alone in the dark it was christian slater is the star yeah, who uh, right. i i know from mr robot yeah that's right so i was horrified to see him in this <laughs> Um, it's film. it's uh, it's it's quite a performance as well. I actually thought that Alone in the Dark, the visual effects were amazing for two thousand. Was it two thousand and five? Alone in the Dark. I mean, they did this very clever thing, which I wanted to share, which is that most of the time when you see the creatures in Alone in the Dark, it's dark. Uh, obviously, Alone in the Dark, it's mm, dark, yeah. and there is direct point lighting. It's very right. rare that you have a well lit room mm. um, because that basically shows up how bad your vfx are but if you have like single points of light like a torch or like flashing things because there's a power cut it's yeah. much easier to get your vfx looking good sound design too sound design was good but those yeah. are the only two things that were good everything else <laughs> um, everyone else on the credits list terrible terrible job we'll go through this one Sort of scene by scene the bits of information i have at the top of my screen are alone in the dark has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 1% from the critics and 11% from the audience, an IMDb score of 2.4 out of 10. And this film cost $20 million. And it is starring Christian Slater, Tara Reid, and Stephen Dorff. I, I wanted to share with you what the first thing I had written was, which is, this feels like Indiana Jones meets Harry Potter in the Chamber of Secrets, which sounds good, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing with all of these films. The ideas behind them are fine. It's just the execution is so bad and you can't really communicate it in a podcast. So like if you're talking about something that happens in these films, it might sound kind of cool. Yeah. But trust mm. us, it's not. You're going to have to trust us. In this podcast you've created, anything that sounds cool probably is not. With that said, let's just jump into it. Please stop me at any point if you have any comments because that's what this is all about and i don't think we'll get much further than the opening of the film because this film opens and you're just instantly force-fed paragraphs of backstory <laughs> oh yeah and it rolls up the screen like credits and it's like 
the opening to Star Wars, yes. except really shit. I actually wrote a summary of this text. Can I share it with you? Oh, Please. yes. Please do. Absolutely. So firstly, I wrote, as you have pointed out, Patty, only Star Wars gets away with massive exposition at the start. And that's because they invented this incredible, beautiful credit, yeah. like text scroll. Yeah. And they get away with it. But what this film opens with, a summary <laughs> is, the Akani were an ancient civilization who believed in two worlds. They are long lost Native Americans who opened a portal and something evil came into our world. So far, that's fairly acceptable backstory, like cool. <laughs> Artifacts of a civilization hidden far away in different places around the world. How did they get there? I have no idea. <laughs> Artifacts have a story of terrifying creatures. Government sets up a paranormal research agency run by an archaeologist. <laughs> and then they, then they shut it down. But he then builds a lab inside of a gold mine and attempts, for some reason, to turn orphan children into half animals. Those are called the lost souls. And that is the premise of the film. They're firm believers in telling and not showing. Oh, yeah. I found out that this was added later after a test screening or two when an overwhelming amount of the, the test screen audience just didn't know what was happening in this film. <laughs> so they were like, OK, so we'll we'll establish all of it in these huge chunks of exposition. One of the notes I've got here is watching this film is like watching a visual representation of all the things that the film books tell you not to do. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, for example, unnecessarily using voiceover. And the yes. first introduction we have to mm. our main character is him defending in voiceover having just ruined a child's day. <laughs> Right. At the start of the film, this child says something and he's like, no, you're wrong. Yeah. And he's like, but my mom told me. And he's yeah. like, no, your mom's wrong too. And then in voiceover, he goes, you might think I was too mean to that child. <laughs> it also bugs me that the narrator at the very beginning of the film giving you all the backstory is a different narrator to, the, to, to that that you have throughout the rest of the movie. Is it really? There's no coherence. Well, it sounds different to me. I can't tell you for certain, but I'm, I'd, I'd bet it. I'd, I'd bet it's two different voices. Do you think because they added it afterwards, they couldn't get... They couldn't get Christian Slater back. He was like, he came, he was at the test screening and he was like, you guys can fix this, but I'm not going to help you. <laughs> he peaced yeah. out. I know, I know I'm supposed to suspend my disbelief within a film like this, but I don't know. Just, no, no, just that's from... not true, Patty. You're not supposed to suspend your disbelief. The director is meant to make you suspend your disbelief. <laughs> so he karate kicks a man through a window a man who's just jumped off a building to karate chop him in the back. Then he does a backflip off the floor and then someone shoots a gun and we have a long, pointless CGI sequence of a bullet coming out of a gun. Oh yeah. my oh gosh. Yeah. Oh yeah, we do. Guy gets shot three times and then is still doing karate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My disbelief is it suspended yet. <laughs> I really enjoy the two different directions that Luke and I went in in sort of breaking down the fight scenes. You've you've really analyzed it, but I thought it was just so shit. I just wrote things like lift, throw, slam, evade, choke with legs, strangle, struggle, more strangle, more struggle, then impale. That is my breakdown of the, the first fight scene in this film. So shortly after this sequence, I do have to mention this because my fiance Rebecca is an actor and there's a character of a delivery man. She felt very close to spiritually 
This is how we find out some backstory. There's a security man and a delivery man. And the delivery man comes in and then the security guy is like, the Akani are a super advanced civilization until they disappeared. And yeah. then the delivery guy's like, who are you, lady? And he's like, this is this important lady who's got lots of credentials. I paused it and I was like laughing at this. And Rebecca was like, that man is trying. Yeah. He's yeah. trying so hard. And bless yeah. him. He's doing a wonderful job with an absolutely horrific script. So I just wanted to give some kudos to that security guy actor. And oh, yes. maybe a little bit to delivery guy. But security guy especially. Just wonderful job, man. You're the star of the yeah. show. Yeah. Oh. It's a good honest attempt. That's for sure. Where does the film start? We've got our bullshit exposition. And then when it ends, it's 1983. It's 22 years ago to the present day. So we see a child and he's wearing pajamas and he's running through a forest and he's evading the search party that's hunting him down. Meanwhile, Sister Clara, she runs this orphanage and it's called the Our Lady of Perpetual Light Orphanage. She's speaking to who I think is Dr. Hudgens, a yeah. younger Dr. Hudgens, right? Mm. And he's like implementing his whole Bureau 713 bullshit and he's going to like steal up all these orphans and he's going to turn them into like little creature monsters. Yeah. But then this kid, this is young Edward Carnby wearing his pajamas running through the woods. He gets away. So 19 of these 20 kids, they go become like the human experiments or whatever. But this dude, he makes a break for it. And then we cut to 22 years later and he's on an airplane being an asshole to a child. And that is our introduction <laughs> yeah. to the adult version of this man, our protagonist, who I'm supposed to like. It is one of those weird things where like your main job in your opening of your film is to get your audience to care about your character or or make us not care if that's the point, if it's an anti-hero. He's not either of these things. We feel sorry for him because he was like, like an orphan. He's had a tough time and he had this weird nun who sold him into monster experiments so we cut to some guy on a boat he's talking on a 2000s flip flip phone flip flop flip flop <laughs> he's talking into a flip flop just to be fair here patty i think it it's not a 2000s flip phone it's a flip phone <laughs> and we're in the 2000s it's cutting edge at the time <laughs> if we're gonna criticize this film we're gonna criticize it fairly <laughs> true <laughs> So he's talking into a flip-flop and he's given <laughs> orders to this like Superman bald guy we're about to meet. And he's like, you need to get this artifact. You need to wreck this motherfucker. Edward gets into a taxi. He reaches into this leather pouch and he pulls out the artifact that we've just heard about. We also learn that he's a paranormal investigator. Because he tells yes. us. Yeah, <laughs> he tells us. He says, I'm a paranormal investigator. <laughs> Where are we at in the story? So Ed and the taxi driver, they spot a second cab following them. The driver is a big, angry man wearing teeny tiny sunglasses. And they try <laughs> they try to lose him. Uh, and they tear off, skidding around corners. But the chase persists. They hit a dead end in a market. The bad cab drives straight into the side of the good cab. But Carnby does a super cool slow-mo jump out of the back seat. Oh, it is cool. Edward runs until he seemingly lost the big bald man. Until this guy lands on him from above. He kind of jumps down in this like pull-up position, mm -hmm. driving his elbows into like 
our main character's shoulders. Shoulder blades, it's a, yeah. It's a weird choice. Edward responds with a kick that sends Bald Boy soaring backwards through a shop window. Edward takes off, but Baldy kicks down a door, pushes an old guy, runs after <laughs> Edward, dives through another shop window, and tackles Edward, and he steals the artifact. But Carnby does a matrixy backflip kick, kicking this priceless 10,000-year-old artifact 10 or more feet into the air. He catches it looking cool. And this is where it just descends into punch, kick, punch, kick, blah, 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 punch, kick. Edward gets away, steals a gun. Bald guy pushes the police officer just to ruin that guy's day even more. It's just a shit fight scene, really. But then he gets impaled on a spike. He does. It ends with him being impaled on a spike. And I guess the only reason this is relevant or that it kills this man is because something's got to like impale or sever this like parasite that's living inside of him. That is a very good thing that you've noticed that. Firstly, it's very lucky that our main character just happened to kick him onto a spike at exactly the point where the parasite lives. <laughs> yeah, I know. We later find mm. out that there is this parasite living on the spine mm. uh, using the person like a robot. Um, mm. And that's why. Wow. The things you only see on a second viewing. The things you only see on a second viewing is also he's shooting his former like orphan buddies and they die, even though I think they shouldn't. I think they should be just as difficult to kill. So just as much as that made sense to me on the second viewing, I think more things didn't make sense. (laughs) (laughs) Some other standout moments from the fight scene is just that shot inside the chamber of the gun. People were mad about this in the early 2000s. It's called bullet time. And it's basically just seeing a bullet come out of the gun from inside the gun barrel and then it flies through the air. Oh. oh man, it was such a big visual effect in the 2000s as we got sort of 3D visual effects. You see sort of some similar VFX in the other film, which we'll get to at some point. Oh yes, we will. <laughs> <laughs> so meanwhile, at a nearby museum, archaeologist Aileen Sedrak, played by Tara Reid, is working at the museum. She receives a delivery from Dr. Hudgens to Dr. Hudgens, uh, and she opens the package to catalog its contents. So it was at this point that we wanted to praise the security guard. Oh, every, yeah. Because we love him. He's brilliant. It's another example of telling and not showing. We know exactly who she is because... He says who she is. Right. It's like, hey, this is Aileen Sedrak. She works here. Edward Carnby, still bleeding from the mouth, walks through the city and unlocks the front door to his unfathomably gigantic room. <laughs> like, it's literally the size of a small church. It's it is huge. huge. And his bedroom looks like... An Animal Crossing bedroom. It does. It's, it's the bedroom you make in Animal Crossing. Yeah. You get the Imperial room divider. You get the big double bed. It's like 50,000 bells. While we were watching it, I was like, he's trying to get his Happy Home Academy points up. <laughs> <laughs> I found the script for this film online. And this is how the script you describes this room. It's, okay. It is, the loft is a large, incredibly cool looking space. This was assumedly <laughs> written by an adult. It's not going to sound like it. I think this is how Quentin Tarantino writes his scripts as well. There's all these like rules on, on how you meant to write scripts. And then sometimes there's just these like little geeky people. Yeah. Who are like <laughs> like t- Quentin Tarantino is like, opens up on a 70 millimeter 
yeah. nature shot or something. <laughs> right. It's like, Gosh. you just love film stock, don't you, man? Cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it goes on to say, in one corner is a lab area filled with high-tech scientific equipment. At another workstation, dozens of drawings, maps, and photos are spread out next to a flat-screen computer. A few photos are tacked to a corkboard. Several bookshelves, all crammed with books, line one wall. A old framed photograph <laughs> sits on a bookshelf, a faded photo of 20 children sitting on the front steps <laughs> right. of the orphanage. Sister Clara stands with them. Young Edward oh my sits God. to one side. It goes on to say, a weapons cabinet features racks lined with guns and blade weapons. In another corner is a workout area. The sleek modern Jesus kitchen Christ. and living quarters are in another corner. The bed is set up against a wall of large windows. Now that, no, it isn't. Now that is a lie. <laughs> Carnby's back in his bedroom. He listens to a voicemail from one of his friends. This is John. His nightmares are back, wanting to know if Edwards are as well. He walks over to the lab corner of his colossal loft and begins to clean and dust and closely inspect the artifact that survived the scuffle he was in only mere hours ago. And it's made of mostly gold. That's going to be important. Meanwhile, Dr. Hudgens is out at sea on a boat, accompanied by the boat's captain, Captain Chernick, apparently. This is the first time we're meeting him, right? We actually saw him in a scene just before the bedroom scene. Um, we did see him like pulling something up out of the sea. And all of my attention in that scene was given to trying to identify where I knew the sailor actor from. And it is from the mail room in the film Elf. <laughs> yes, yes. Rebecca said exactly the same yes. thing. Yeah. Yeah. We looked yeah. it up. She yeah. was like, I know him from somewhere. Yeah. I was like, uh, Elf? And she's like, yeah, he's in yep. the mail room. Yep. <laughs> well, he went up in the world from this to Elf. Good job, man. So Dr. Hudgens and the guy from the mailroom in Elf, they walk towards a much harder working crew who have just unearthed a large container and it, like the artifact, is made of solid gold. Dr. Hudgens gives orders to the ship's crew on how to delicately transport the container when he's betrayed by the captain and the crew. They swarm the doctor and lock him in a nearby room, but he warns them that they're making a big mistake whilst he's being dragged away, which, as it transports Fires, they definitely are. The captain opens the container and all hell breaks loose. But not just on the ship. We cut back to Carnby, still in his killer crib. He grips his head in agony and he falls to the ground. And we see the golden artifact now glowing. And then we get this weird sequence where... So you remember in the introduction we were talking about the lost souls. Which I took to mean that they were ghosts. That he'd killed these children by accident and now they were lost souls. Imagine my shock when we cut to a scene in which a lady's doing her washing up <laughs> and she's the lost soul. Yep. And turns out she's just been living a perfectly normal life. <laughs> Some of them have partners, but deep down they are monster children. I have, yeah, a, stra right. I have a strange observation because I did a write-up for that scene and she's doing her dishes. Presumably her and John are living in the same city. Right? Because yes. they all managed to walk to this other place. Yes. John's in bed asleep. Yes. In what world, what time frame are we in where realistically this woman's just finished having dinner and this adult man is in bed? <laughs> well, yes. And, and asleep. His, his wife is like fully asleep and this lady is just doing her washing yeah, up. Yeah, it's night time. She might work late or John might go to bed at five. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's, it's everything is possible. We have this shot basically of this woman who's doing her washing up and then she leaves and, and she's so overcome by the beast within mm. that she leaves the front door open. Mm. Yeah. Um, but that's not enough. It's not enough that we think, oh, she's, she's overcome by the beast within. She's left the door open. Mm. We then cut back to the washing up bowl and we see that the water's overflowing. <laughs> oh no, that was important information. That was a good five seconds of our life that we were like, we get to the end of this film, we think everything's been wrapped up. I want to know what happened to this kitchen. Is the house now flooded? Yeah. I want to see us cut back to that before the film ends and it's just a flooded kitchen it's Full like room. yeah it's like we're like two minutes deep into like a fight scene montage and we cut back to this <laughs> woman's kitchen just <laughs> getting higher and higher the, half the camera is covered by water slushing around <laughs> just, ah. just minorly i think they also magnetized her front door because it, it like gets sucked to the wall when yeah. she opens it oh I'm my like, god <laughs> it looks like a reverse clip yeah. it's like <laughs> i know and i was like right so you tried a shot one time you opened the door and then it just closed, closed again, again didn't didn't it? yeah <laughs> that is such a weird now you point that out that is so unnatural so abrupt. weird to look at <laughs> So Carnby wakes up from his artifact-induced migraine uh, with a phone call from Linda, John's wife, hysterical that her husband is missing. Uh, he says he'll be right there, but not before he narrates some more clunky exposition about Abkhani artifacts and legends and pledging allegiance to dark creatures and gaining supernatural powers and losing all humanity in the process, uh, which he worries has happened to John and possibly the others. They've made up the Abkhani, right? That's not a real, they're not a real civilization they have made up the abkhani but it, they've only slightly changed the letters of a real native american tribe called the abenaki okay so they've just swapped the n and the k around and added an e a lot of the visuals that they go for with the abkhani are very egyptian very egyptian mm. but then also sort of aztec at the same time yeah so because they like early on in the film say that it gets spread all over the world if you're going to go for that why not just say it's an ancient egyptian organization or whatever or civilization sorry americans don't make anything not based in america don't they? <laughs> it's really true. they don't even know the rest of the world exists <laughs> okay never mind you answered my question that is exemplified in the fact that like you say it's kind of aztec -y, it's kind of egyptian <laughs> just stick something foreign on there yeah. so basically edward goes over to john's wife linda's place and he's like i'm gonna find john it's fine and i don't know nothing particularly interesting happens the guy who warned you don't know what you're doing with the big golden box. Yeah. Yes. He gets out of his place that he was trapped in uh, somehow, gets out and he finds that all of the people who he warned are in fact dead. And whatever was in the box has now escaped. Mm. The boat is covered in blood. He like flips some sort of switch inside the coffin that they opened and there's a small artifact at the bottom. And then immediately after we go to Bureau 713, this sort of kind of men in black style secret agency which we of course if you were paying attention to the intro know is run by an archaeologist yes yeah in a gold mine that scene is meant to be introducing another main character the antagonist the guy who's going to be mean to our guy yeah yes and actually one of the other wonderful actors of the film lady in beanie 
Yes. Lady in Beanie does a great job. Yes. She works in the MI five E, MI six E kind of men in black place. And she yeah, she has quite a few lines. You know she's a spy because yeah. she's wearing a beanie. She has a name. They they name her at one point. She's called Krasinski, I think. It's a very like, I'm a spy and I need a spy name. Oh, it's like Kowalski from Madagascar. That's what I'm thinking. The penguin. I was thinking of Krasinski, John Krasinski. I was thinking of Mike Wazowski. Right. We all have different impressions. <laughs> all of them great. I want to see all of these characters in a spy film together. Oh, yeah. Mike Wazowski, John Krasinski, a real man. <laughs> and the penguin from <laughs> Madagascar. <laughs> Edward calls up his old pal Fish, who works at Bureau 713, and he meets up with Fish at their old hangout. He describes it as their old hangout, which is just a cafe outside. <laughs> they just sit outside and they eat pie. So he's looking for information on these on these missing kids, is yeah, it? Yeah, that's it. This kind of 713 guy who he meets up in his old hangout has, I think, probably my favorite line from the film. Bring it. Which is, I did a cross-reference on the missing people. Not much in common, except they all grew up in the same orphanage. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite, quite a lot in common. <laughs> 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 hmm, there's probably nothing to do nothing nothing here we need to look into at all nothing much just they all grew up in the same orphanage so shortly afterward edward surprises his girlfriend aileen at work but she's like real surprised because apparently she's believed that edward has been dead this entire time and what does she do? She hugs him and then she punches him she punches yeah. him not a, it's not a slap she like close yeah. fist punches him in the face and i'm kind of with her because i wrote this down right <laughs> let's backtrack a little bit here so edward has been home he's been in his house since arriving at the airport he both listens to voicemails on his landline phone and then receives a call from linda on his cell phone so homie's got two phones and he doesn't use either one of these to call his girlfriend and tell her that she's alive and his computer's connected to the internet because he's researching disappearances of his fellow orphans on it. It's like, <laughs> fuck. It's like, you can't call this woman. Then, like, at least throw her, like, an email or, like, a MySpace message or something. And then he goes to, like, three different places this morning. He meets up with an old buddy in their old hangouts. He goes to his friend's wife's house. <laughs> he goes and eats pie at the old hangout. But these two rekindle their love pretty quickly, probably because Edward's come here with a shiny new Abkani artifact. So how could you not be excited about that? What more could a girl want? <laughs> this is the first time that I believe she says the line, this is Abkani, which she then says... <laughs> about eight different times in the film whenever something that looks slightly not English comes up. Yeah. She says, this is Abkhani. So while these two are admiring the Abkhani artifact, um, the lights begin to flicker and the two leave to investigate, but not before Edward returns, uh, not before Edward returns the artifact to the safety of his jacket pocket. The museum security guard is also investigating why the lights are acting so strangely. And after a long and unsuspenseful wander through the various exhibits, <laughs> an enormous slithery claw hand grips the security guard by the head, pierces a long, sharp spike from the back of his throat and out through the front of his wide open mouth. And it drops him to the floor, dead, to discover that that 
was not just no slithery claw hand, but more like a long scorpion tail, and it belongs to a creature from the world of darkness. I actually really liked this death. And again, security guard delivers. He's brilliant. He's brilliant. Now, how would you describe what these creatures look like? Like a big scorpion. Yeah, they've got big scorpion tails, but they also sort of look like alligators with <laughs> like kangaroo bodies. It is. It's an alligator scorpion. Kangaroo. And I've combined, what's it called? Where you combine three different words into one word. A smushing? A smushing. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've made a smushing. Scorpion, alligator, and kangaroo. So we're going to call them scorpigatoroos. Sporkangaroo. Spork sporkigatoroos. Scorpigatoroo. Scorpigatoroos. What's the word for that? It sounds funny like palindrome, but it's not palindrome. That's a word that goes backwards. A portmanteau. A portmanteau is like when you take two words and you make one word out of it. Did you know podcast is a portmanteau? A made-up word coined from a combination of the words iPod and broadcast. iPod? Yeah. I would have thought podcast was way older than the iPod. That is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it is just Google telling me that, so so do your own fact-checking. So security man has just been slain by the Scorpigatoroo. At this point, I stopped watching because I was too sad. I actually didn't see the end of the film. So Edward and Aileen discover the body and quickly become the creature's newest targets. They sprint away, find shelter in a small nearby room, and are temporarily rescued when a SWAT team comes crashing down through the roof windows of the museum. They open machine gun fire on the creature, and it turns around and it flees. So now... In walks Commander Richard Burke, who is not only carrying out this SWAT mission, but also worked under Carnby's authority back at Bureau 713. So their relationship is contentious at best. His name's Richard Burke. I love that they call him Burke. Yeah. You're not meant to like him, and he's called Burke. Is it a common name in America, Patty? It might be, but also Burke isn't like an insult or a term in, in America? America. You Burke? Yeah. That's, oh. that's purely a, an English thing, it as far as I'm aware. It does sound quite English, doesn't yeah. it, Burke? Carnby swings by Bureau 713 and visits Fish, uh, who's performing an autopsy on the bald guy who was chasing down Edward at the start of the film. They discover a symbiotic parasite that was living inside the mean, mean man. But then Edward's presence wakes up some sort of radar that's all like, you've got one of those darkness creature parasites inside of you too, which he does. But it's dead because he was like electrified when he was a kid. That's oh, the, it's all very convenient, that's isn't the it? film's reason. Yeah. Bureau 713 has been studying these creatures for a while now. And what we know about them is that their only real weakness is like certain kinds of super potent light, like sunlight, and also the kind of light coming out of this specific flashlight that we're going to give to Edward now. So you can slap it onto his gun. But the super secret weapons are these yellow bullets coated in photon accelerated luminescent resin. I was trying to pick apart why that would make it do anything. Photon accelerated, luminescent, luminescent. resin. So accelerated photons. It's a resin. Illuminated. I mean, if they don't like light, then fair enough. It's like devil's snare. If you can get some kind of light in there, great. But what the hell does photon accelerate? That's what I was thinking. That was my <laughs> that main issue. doesn't mean no. anything. No. They were like insert long word i'll quickly google it see if it actually holds any water is there any such thing photon accelerated can photons be accelerated 
No. Oh. <laughs> or to travel at the speed of light, which is the highest speed. In a single Google search, we have concluded that that is bullshit. That's excellent. Dr. Hoosit is back at the museum, and he heads to his office, where we discover that he has a trapped creature of darkness in his office like a big scary pet dog. From a safe distance, he prods the creature with a syringe on a stick, and he injects himself with essence of creature and you can see on his left <laughs> arm that he does this shit often carnby and aileen are trying to solve the puzzle of the artifacts when they're attacked by all of or at least a bunch of edward's friends from the orphanage except now they're super strong zombie people like pinkerton that's the name of the bald guy i only <laughs> found that out halfway through pinkerton. this right wait no you missed out you missed <gasps> out you missed a very important what did we miss? on Random unnecessary sex Oh my scene. gosh. You're right. I, d I don't think I wrote about that <laughs> at all. Because this is what they did in the middle days of cinema. They just had unnecessary sex scenes so that they could put them in the trailer. It's like the sex scene in the room. It's just like so unnecessary, weird music. The song was similar too. And it doesn't yeah. add anything. It's just like if you were really stupid and you didn't know that these two were together. <laughs> now you know. Now you know. And we can get on with the rest of the film. It's weird. And it's it's weird, too, because they have no, like we said, romantic chemistry. They don't kiss. I don't really remember them holding hands at, at all during this film. Well, it's, no, but when you're in a couple, you just have sex. That's you just all. have sex. That's the establishing factor. There's no kissing or hand-holding. Yeah, there's, there's two states. There's having sex, and then there's shooting photon-accelerated <laughs> luminescent resin bubbles. Into your childhood friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they do have some weird, gratuitous sex scene. But then afterwards, they're trying to solve the puzzle of the artifacts when they're attacked by all the zombies from the orphanage. But they don't kill the guy earlier. It should not kill them. I guess they have the niche bullets now. Maybe that's what it is. That's true. I don't know. I just, I, I want to, I want to believe. By the way, he does then kill all of his childhood friends and then is absolutely fine. Yes. Oh, he doesn't yeah. seem at all bothered by the fact that he's just shot his friends. So now the creatures are back and we get to watch Edward, Aileen and the entire SWAT team just spraying bullets at these things. And it's basically like a glorified music video for like some riffy metal track. Now the entire SWAT team is just in Edward's apartment. From this point on, it's basically just like a 45 minute long scene of a SWAT team oh, yeah. playing paintball against zombies and lizard creatures from hell with tanks and helicopters and assault rifles and explosions and sand monsters. And even one woman gets her like head kind of cut into two and it's weird. They go to this place wherever the hub of the dark creatures the are. The gold mine. They're the in gold the gold mine. mine. Oh, I didn't pick up that that's what it was supposed to be. <laughs> Neither did I. They heavily try to defend the place and they keep going on at this guy who's just trying to get the lights up and running. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. They do not give this dude a break. They are on his back constantly. They do not leave this guy alone literally until the moment he dies. And when he dies, they're still pissed at him. Yeah. for not having the lights working. Doesn't he explode? Yes. Yeah. He explodes. Yeah. He gets like blown up. This entire sequence, this 45 minute basically metal yeah. music video in which they're trying to destroy these giant scorpion alligators. As far as I remember, having made such a big deal out of these photon accelerated bullets, None of the bullets work. Right, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Like they keep shooting it's... at these things. They've got helicopters and they've <laughs> yes. got like a whole army and they just keep coming and they don't die. And it's like, we, you made such a big they deal out of these bullets. They keep respawning. And yeah. like they've made these 
creatures that are impossible to kill. But yeah, so like the main group, whoever they are now, I don't know. It's like Aileen, Christian Slater, antagonist guy. Yeah. And two bodyguards that end up getting killed, right? Kind of. They go down a hole. This is where it's trying to emulate Indiana Jones. Yes. Oh, yeah. And they go into an Egyptian pyramid, essentially. They go into like a booby-trapped place full of sand. This is another yeah. scene where she says, it's Abkhani, as if we didn't know. <laughs> it's Abkhani. And then they walk down a tunnel to this lab and they open it to like the underworld. It's like hell. It's a door to like hell. It's like, yeah, yeah the world of darkness that we heard about at the start of the There's all these film. like crawling creatures in there. Yes. Um, but they don't come out. We get antagonist guy who sacrifices himself. Well, they get out to the surface again and it turns out they're now at the orphanage. They come out of like a doorway and now they're at the orphanage. Uh, oh yes, because that's what they found underground. It was the it was the doctor's lab with all the names on their beds of the orphans that he'd put the parasite into. He walks into the orphanage, he finds the dead nun. The dead nun. And then, and then, we have... Now, this is a bold claim, but I'm I'm very happy to make it. I think the worst ending for a film ever. <laughs> it's so bad. It's like, look, when you have that level of money, mm. one of the things that happens in films very frequently is they do audience testing. And this is obviously the case because, as Patty said, yeah. they, they've added this sort of pre-text scroll because yeah. they've done audience testing and they found, okay, this doesn't make any sense. And... You do have these audience test screenings where you get mm -hmm. feedback and you, you often will have several different endings that you'll try. Okay. Um, especially if you're making a film that clearly no one's passionate about. Like, <laughs> generally, like I would, I would be pretty reticent to replace the ending of something I'd written because I'd be like, no, I've, I feel like I've told this story and ended this story in a way that's meaningful to me. But this film ends with them going into... Like sort of, I don't know, downtown Manhattan or something. Where are they? I don't know where yeah, they are. I don't know. And then the camera moves at them quickly, and mm -hmm. that's the end. I do find it odd that they did audience testing. The results of that was okay. We'll get a voiceover guy in, and we'll make some text scroll. They yes. obviously yeah, didn't right. reserve any budget for actually if they had to reshoot anything. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this was the moment when I kind of didn't feel like this was a horror movie. I felt like this was like right. an action movie. Big yes. time. We almost didn't talk about it for that reason. Yeah. It's right. only coupled with the next film yeah. that we've spoken about it. Yeah. Right. But <laughs> that ending is a typical, not even B movie, C movie horror movie <laughs> ending. Yeah. Like crap horror yeah. movie ending where like sometimes you get horror movies that are like good or even at least passable that mm -hmm. have just the worst horrible cliche horror movie ending. Yep. Yeah. So is there anything left to say about Alone in the Dark before we move on? Because, I mean, we will compare the two and we will talk about which one is a better film or which we enjoyed more or whatever those things mean. But I don't think there's anything left to say about Alone in the Dark. It's the, just a movie, the, isn't the, it? The doctor <laughs> dies in like a Scooby-Doo way, like you mentioned um, when we were watching he it. Gives, he gives a very Scooby-Doo speech <laughs> when he dies, going like, and I would have gotten away with it too <laughs> if you hadn't escaped all those years ago. And then, like I said, about him injecting him sh himself with this like essence of creature is he just dies by having like a knife thrown at him and then he just kind of sprays yes. machine guns into the ceiling and it's like okay <laughs> this guy's dead now he wasn't he a threat was, at all he was kind of the villain and who cares it's a weird thing in movies how quickly do you die if you're stabbed i think it must be a little bit longer well, than, i think than it must be you. It, yeah surely it takes like 
not to get graphic, but like it takes a while. Whereas he's just I think, like, yeah, I think it'd be different away. to, I think it'd be different to a bullet wound as well, because like with a knife wound, you've kind of kept the, the wound sealed. Yeah, there's place. still like, yeah. yeah, it's like, it's, there's still pressure. You wouldn't lose nearly as much blood. I heard something really interesting. This is ever, ever so slightly off topic. I heard something in that I read something on Reddit. So believe it at your own discretion that before films came out, when people got shot, they didn't fall over. It was right. only when films came out and dramatized them in a way that they fell over that people's brains have internalized it and go, oh, I have to fall over. Because when people get shot and they don't realize that they've been shot, it's only when they realize that they then fall down. That is fascinating. So do fact check that. <laughs> so House of the Dead. <laughs> so House of the Dead, released in 2003, this one scores higher with the critics and lower with the audience. Not by a lot. It's a Rotten Tomatoes score of 3% from the critics, which is up 2%, but 10% from the audience, which is down 1%. It's got an IMDb score of 2.0 out of 10. So it's down 0.4. It was made with a budget of $12 million, which is $8 million less, which I would like to talk about now because I had to myself try to figure out what the difference in the budget was. I would say a lot more than $8 million. Alone in the Dark is a much more expensive looking film. Well, but it's two years later. True. And technology was wildly different for sure. So this is executive producer and director Uwe Boll, whereas I think the first one is just produced and directed. So he's, he's, he's graduated to executive producer. I don't know what that means. Hang on, he's um, graduated, but this film came earlier. Oh, yeah, you're oh, right. So he actually so, got so demoted. He was, yeah, so he was demoted two years later. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Luke, can you tell us what the difference is? An executive producer credit is generally given um, for somebody who was basically instrumental in the film being made, but doesn't necessarily have that much involvement in, in the actual production. They may do. But it, for example, like executive producer credit may be given to a really famous actor who appears in your film, who without their appearance, the film might not have been made or might not do as well. And that that's a way of giving them another credit on top of being in the cast. It's like, and we're also incredibly grateful this film wouldn't otherwise have done as well. So you oh, get sort cool. of a, a higher level of accolade because of that. Executive producers also might be uh, funding it as well. They might be putting money in. Whereas right. producer, okay. a producer credit is generally given to someone who's actually involved in the organization process of picking crew, picking scheduling, or at least giving those tasks to other people. Um, so it's a more involved role. Okay. But that also varies a lot across productions. Because he was more involved in Alone in the Dark. Maybe that's why it's worse, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> it could also just be that, for example, he secured the rights to make the film adaptation of House of the Dead, so he gets the executive producer credit. I see. When he then makes Alone in the Dark, he's now so much more experienced having made House of the Dead, which yeah. <laughs> it obviously is reflected in the quality of the film. Oh, yeah. The fact sure. that his experience level has gone up, that he gets the producer credit, so he actually comes in and actually does a lot of the scheduling in Alone in the Dark and actually okay. does that stuff. Whereas in House of the Dead, maybe he just directed it and also was in in some way instrumental to the fact that the film exists in the first place. Okay. Okay. That's clarified my feelings a little. Love it. <laughs> yeah. So shall we just launch in? Yeah. House of the Dead... 
begins with a guy wearing a red shirt. We don't get told his name and we won't actually see him again for 28 more minutes, <laughs> despite oh him transpiring to be the film's main character, I think. We will hear his voice, however, because he's our narrator. I don't know. It's the weirdest choice. Once again, this guy, this director coming in with the incredible opening voiceover lines. This film opens with the voiceover line. It was a nightmare. So many dead people. <laughs> it started a few days ago when I came here for a rave. All that's left is the rotten stench of death. I love oh my it. gosh. A little bit better than you might think I'm mean for being horrible to that child, but actually <laughs> yeah. I was perfectly justified. <laughs> We've actually played this game. The arcade game. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the, yeah. In, the arc in arcades growing up, I had played this game. I don't know if you might have actually played it and not realized it's like the typical zombie game that was always available with the guns. Right. Well, I, I, I do know what the game looks like. <laughs> oh, yes, you do. Due to the film's um, in, insistence on randomly cutting to shots of the game. Because we've ended up here, tell me your thoughts, because I've wanted to know this for days. <laughs> okay, so my thoughts, this may be a little bit of a niche reference to some of your audience, but you know in South Park where they have yeah. the member berries? Yes. <laughs> so in South Park, they have this recurring joke that's like, member, I remember, where it's just like we're a film franchise, for example, like the Harry Potter, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them takes you back to Hogwarts so that you go, remember Hogwarts? Oh my God. So I remember Hogwarts just so that you get that kind of nostalgia kick, like mixed in with this dreadful film. And that's what it feels like. Because what happens is later on in the film, as you'll remember, yeah. there are scenes with zombies in mm -hmm. which they then cut to game footage of yes. zombies being shot. And that's, yes. you know, I I wouldn't make that editing choice, but <laughs> it makes sense. Yes. You know, match cut, <laughs> zombies being shot in film world to match cut, <laughs> zombies being shot in game. But the, the cuts to the game zombie shooting start way before we even know there are zombies. Yeah. It just like is there to make you go, oh, jump scare, there are zombies. And my favorite part of all is that the recordings of this game footage that they're cutting to, yeah. if you look carefully, in the bottom right corner, it says, press start to yes. press. Oh, so it's just the, it. the main menu? <laughs> so it's the main menu of the game. They've not even like, I think at one point it says insert coin. Oh my god. They've gosh. not even like actually played the game and got footage. This is like, if you're on the Mario Kart like home screen yeah. and you don't start a game, it yeah. just plays you some game footage. They've not even played the game. They've just recorded the home screen and it says press start to play. We were watching this with our friend Harry who like was absolutely here for aspects of this film like yeah. he 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 thought there was potential if they'd molded more of the game into the film if they wanted to make it that sort of like um kitschy and spoofy it might have worked they didn't and he was sad about that but he did point <laughs> out that maybe it was like a cheap form of a jump scare yeah so because i was kind of set up for this with this idea of this film and, and me being just basically as skeptical as i possibly could <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was basically on the lookout for like rubbish stuff. I was like, yes. okay, where's the rubbish stuff? Where's the funny thing? That's what I'm doing. I'm writing notes, coming on the podcast and like, let's talk about all the things that suck. I was in that frame of mind and I was looking at the credits. The credits were rolling. The names at the start of the film were rolling. And I was like, Luke, look, don't point out funny names in the credits. Yeah. That's not mature. These are people. It's their name. They can't help it. And just as I was thinking that, <laughs> it goes, associate producer, Max Wank. 
W-A-N-K-E. And I was like, I need to write. Okay, look, there's some there's some names where I was like, I could I could interpret that in a funny way, but maximum wank. <laughs> Brilliant way to summarise my feelings on this film, actually. What parents did that to their poor child? And what child then went through life and was like, I know that name changes are a thing, but I'm going to be a producer and have that written on a screen. (laughs) So Mr. Redshirt Guy, we're not told his name yet. We get there at like half an hour into the film. After we meet him, it plays like the only injection of gameplay footage with dialogue. A female character is saying something to the effect of, you must stop Kyrian or else something terrible will happen. And then we meet our core group of characters and they suck. And Red Shirt Guy is narrating the whole time. And he is like, okay, now I wrote it down because just nothing. Oh, this, can... is, this is absolute gold. It's brilliant. Red Shirt Guy is saying, Greg is the guy I played ball with in college. A good guy, if not a little goofy. Simon, they say God doesn't give us two hands, and they're right. He got the looks, but not much between those ears. And then Cynthia, Greg's girlfriend, pure eye candy. And Karma, she thinks she's boxy brown. She has a crush on Simon, but Simon only has eyes for Alicia, my ex. We broke up so I could study and she could fence. She loves it. (laughs) I don't see what it's good for. Then we enter a section of the film, which I have labeled lots of unexpected boobs. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Oh, they wanted the boobs in this film. But then we get a scene in which the basis of the scene is one of the characters is washing her t-shirt on the stove. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then one of the characters who she just met walks in and they have a conversation. It's just like the director just wanted a few topless scenes in the film, but then they don't ever happen again. They're all concentrated in this weird, like, two-minute sequence of unexpected boobs. And yeah. then the rest of the film is like, no, that's now not part of the story world we're living in. You are so correct, yeah. It's probably like back then when you didn't have the internet Mm. you go to the cinema to see a boob i guess you go to the cinema because it's a big boob when you go to the (laughs) cinema (laughs) that's what you that's what you're paying all that money for (laughs) so sequentially we've just met the gang yeah they approach a boat one of my favorite parts of this film they arrive at the empty dock and they realize that they missed the boat to the rave. And our narrator arrives to help us navigate this scene by saying, they missed the boat to the rave. (laughs) (laughs) And then he just adds, if only they decided to stay back in Seattle, they'd all still be alive. So it's like, we kind of know that they're all going to die at this point too. So, okay, fun, I guess. And then we see a glimpse of the rave. Everybody's like drinking and dancing and partying, just having a grand old time. One person's even playing with one of those like 90s expandable and collapsible balls made out of plastic. Do you remember The ones those? for children. One of those <laughs> is at a rave. <laughs> the rave is also sponsored by Sega, which is pretty cool of them to hook it up for the kids like that. At the rave, red shirt narrator guy thinks to himself or us i don't know he says i was trying my best to function as a single guy should oh yeah whilst he's pointing his camera at some boobs (laughs) (laughs) nothing else about this scene is important apart from we meet my favorite character who is liberty oh we love liberty i love liberty uh and she's wearing like a star-spangled banner like 
play suit or something. And she's called Liberty. And she's it's fierce great. as fuck. And I'm here for it. I love it. So now we meet dude with hook for a hand. Yes, we do. So take it away. Well, he is dude with hook for a hand, but then he immediately takes his hook off. Yeah. <laughs> he does. <laughs> no. He, he, he's hook for a hand guy. And then he puts the hook on another hook. <laughs> and then doesn't have his hook anymore. He did very little background work for this character, except maybe just looked at the word pirate on Google <laughs> <laughs> and just ran with it. Yeah, because uh, he plays a weird character. I couldn't tell what he's trying to be. No. I think but it's he... an Igor character in terms of like Frankenstein's monster. Right. The sort of hunched assistant. assistant. Right. To the Nordic fisherman. <laughs> That's the part where that doesn't quite match up. <laughs> the classic duo. So when we meet these guys, it's because Simon's trying to convince Captain Kirk and his first mate <laughs> Salish to take them to the island. That is until they find out that they're heading to Isla del Morte, prompting mm. my favorite reactions, which come from Salish, where he's going, you crazy, they crazy. And then uh, Simon at some point asks why, and he goes, why, why, why they always ask why? <laughs> it's just, it's a, it's a choice, and that's fine. <laughs> Do you know who this actor is? No. So this is Clint Howard, brother of Ron Howard. Oh. <gasps> Oh, now you say that, he does look like Ron Howard. So that's Ron Howard's brother, who has been in, you know, a couple of things. He was in Austin Powers. It just makes me laugh. This is a film he's in. That is wild. They basically say no amount of money will ever make them go back to that island. Simon offers them $1,000 and Kirk's like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I am in. <laughs> but before the boat can depart from the dock, they're approached by two cops, Casper and her friend. I don't know who this guy is, but Simon throws more money in Captain Kirk's face and they take off. Casper and her pal pursue the boat to the island. Meanwhile, two party goers on the island separate from the rave to have a little adventure of their own. The girl goes for a swim. The guy stays behind on the beach because the water's super cold. So homegirl returns from the water and she discovers that her man friend is missing. So she, she searches all over the woods for him finds nothing besides a house, very possibly the house of the dead, what with the dozens of tombstones decorating its front garden. <laughs> she walks inside the house of the dead, looking for her partner, and she finds him, bleeding from the mouth as a zombie's hand journeys into the man's back and out through his chest. She screams in terror as the same fate finds her. The lighting is very dim, so we don't get a particularly good look at the zombies just yet, but the main thing we see is their eyes, glowing red in the darkness, something I don't think we ever see again after this moment. They can't really decide what the creatures are. There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of variations on the, some swim, some are made of moss. Yeah, they come out of a wall. My main problem with a lot of them is you see all of them. It's like the opposite of Alone in the Dark. It's like you just see these people walking around dressed as zombies and it's not scary at all. Oh yeah, no way yeah. it's scary. No. It's absolutely crap. Yeah. It's these so these, crap. these actors also don't perform zombie very well. There's a great shot later on, can't tell you where it is, I have no idea, but there's this really funny shot where it's like a wide shot of like all these zombies a lot of the budget on this film will have gone on extras yes there's a lot of extras this, yeah but there's one in which like 
all these zombies are like being zombies and then there's this like one lady who's just like looks like she doesn't know where she's meant to be <laughs> and she's just like looking around and trying not to fall over oh, it's really that. funny so immediately after these two kids get killed we see a much shorter but very similar scene so basically the rave has been ravaged by zombies like they were just kind of like like getting mm-hmm. it on near a tent and they're dead too. So basically it's safe to assume that the whole rave has just been slain. So now our five favorite friends accompanied by Captain Kirk and Salish arrive on one side of the island while Casper and her anonymous co-worker cop arrive on the other side. Kirk and his first mate attempt to hastily hide a large wooden crate of smuggled somethings. And now Greg, Simon, Cynthia, Karma, and Alicia walk all day and night until they finally arrive at the party of the year only to find absolutely nobody there. It looks more like a ghost town than a weekend long rave on Isla del Morte sponsored by Sega Entertainment Systems. <laughs> and they don't care. No, they just have, they go to the beer yeah. and they go, "Ooh, a full keg." And they just start <laughs> drinking. The girl, to be fair, to be fair, the girls yeah. are all like, "Are you not is this not weird?" Yeah. And all the guys are like, no, the keg's full. <laughs> Stupid. It prompts my favorite two lines as well, where Alicia in particular is like, are you not worried? And then Simon goes, yeah, it worries me. It worries me they don't have any mixer. Simon can't survive on Bud alone, referring to himself. And then Greg replies, speak for yourself, dude. It's like, he was. He was talking about only himself in the third person. It's like, who the fuck wrote that? I think it's genius writing. <laughs> We're not giving them enough credit here. I think that is an absolutely incredible line. Alicia, Simon, and Karma decide to search for some sign of human life. Greg and Cynthia stay behind and fool around until Greg hears the approaching storm and says, I think it might rain. Why don't we go somewhere where we won't get wet? She replies, too late. And what does he reply? I don't remember. What does he reply? (laughs) So what I've got written here, I think there might be like a, a short break between these lines, but what I've got is, I think it's going to rain. Let's go somewhere we won't get wet. She replies, too late. They go to a tent and he says, oh, I'm going to give you the humpity bumpity baby. <laughs> yes, he does. He does say that. Why does he say that? <laughs> I'm going to give you the humpity bumpity baby. God, I love it. We cut away from that scene to the other friends, they've now found the House of the Dead. And two of them don't want to go in the House of the Dead. And so they make this clear. One of them says, I'm not going in there. (laughs) The other one says, yeah, you're on your own, hun. And then the girl that they're speaking to replies, well, are you coming or am I going in on myself? I'm not going in there. (laughs) Neither am I. Are you coming? (laughs) (laughs) Or am I going in by myself? And then I think they then go with her. Uh, at this point, we're now 30 minutes into the film, by the way. I've wrote that down because I think I was in pain yeah. in some way. <laughs> Did you watch this one with Rebecca? With her presence in the room. Okay, okay, yes. okay. Um, with her paying much attention? No. <laughs> I don't blame her. I think her. she was knitting at the I time. Do not she likes blame to knit. Her. I think what I think her actual words were, um, I said, Are you gonna watch it with me? And she said, Yes, but I'm going to crochet as well, so I'm not wasting my time. <laughs> well, are you watching it with me then? <laughs> or am I watching it on my own? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just glad you didn't have to watch it alone. In the dark. Ah. <laughs> so after this scene, we then come across a portable toilet which seems to have someone in. A man comes out of that portable toilet covered in poo. <laughs> as far as I'm aware, he's the man who said. The ever classic line, 
oh, I'm going to give you the humpity bumpity baby. Um, and then his girlfriend turns up. She's a zombie. The policewoman shoots her in the head and man covered in poo is, is not sad. He doesn't seem sad about the fact that his girlfriend is dead. He's fine. He doesn't, he doesn't He's fuck so it. fine He doesn't with it. care at all. He can't then give her the humble no, no. And he's covered in poo. <laughs> <laughs> but he's fine with He's all fine. He's things. more distressed about the fact that he's covered in poo yes, than his girlfriend sure. dying. <laughs> My favorite line when she gets shot and killed is Casper delivers the shot and, and she goes, what the hell was that thing? And then Karma goes, our best friend. Yeah. And then she goes, not anymore. <laughs> yes, yes. I love that line. Because it is, it is the line is saying is, it's not your best friend anymore because they're infected by the zombie virus. Yeah. But what it sounds like she's saying is, it's not your best friend anymore because I shot her in the head. <laughs> shot her in the head. She is dead. See, the only thing we did skip, and it's, it's not important, it's just so stupid, is when... Alicia and Simon and Karma go into this house. They meet the other three. They meet Red Shirt Guy, Camcorder Guy, mm. and Liberty. And this is where we find out Red Shirt Guy's name. So he's the narrator. He's the main character. We're only just kind of involving him in our main core characters. And we find out his name's Rudy. Oh, yeah. He's called Rudolph. Yes. Yeah. I didn't realize this until the end of the film. I know. Uh, yeah. At the end of the film, he, he's asked his name and he goes... The name's Rudolph. And it's like, why is your name Rudolph? His role as the narrator is to get you to care about everybody else but him. Because he's, <laughs> he's just giving you reasons to care about other people. So that's where we find out his name. And it's just like, sure, fine, whatever. Who cares? Yeah, and then Greg just has zero reaction to watching his girlfriend get shot in the head. It's just such a bummer. The super group is now Greg Simon... Karma, Alicia, Rudy, Liberty, and Casper. And they're all heading back to the boat to find Captain Kirk, Salish, and their ride back to civilization. Yes. That's the plot. Now, there's just so many characters in this movie. Oh, and they, don't worry. And they die often. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question yeah. that I don't believe I ever got the answer to in the film, but I probably did at some point. Um, the Coast Guard people, mm -hmm. what are they called again? Casper and someone else. So they come to the island. They are basically the Coast Guard. Yeah. And then as we meet them, they ask if if the party people have a boat. <laughs> <laughs> Where's Wait. their boat gone? Oh my God. Why don't but they're you the Coast have Guard. a boat? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. Why don't they? Is there not, an, is there not an answer? Why do the why Coast they not Guard have a gun? Yeah, I don't know. Is it just in America? America. Yeah. Uh, probably America, America, yeah. So now there's a scene of Captain Kirk smoking a cigar while he's just casually shooting aquatic zombies in the face. I love this scene. Yes, this is brilliant because it felt very uncomfortable watching zombies yes, swim. Yes, yeah. it did. It just looks like people dressed as zombies swimming. It's not scary <laughs> at all because they, when they're on the land, they move like how you expect zombies to yeah. move. But when, you, when they're in the water, they just move like people who are swimming. <laughs> they don't even have like a zombie swim. They just swim. So you then have this weird sequence in which one of our guys, one of these main kind of group is in the water. Liberty's in the water, gets pulled underwater. Interesting um, sound design note mm. here, who I wanted to mention was one of the sort of tropes of this film is whenever there's something exciting, sorry, inverted commas exciting, <laughs> is happening, yeah, right. you have like 
very aggressive drum and bass. And sometimes there's rock. So in film, you have this idea of diegetic and non-diegetic sound. Mm -hmm. So you have diegetic sound is sound that is happening. The characters can hear the music. And then you have non-diegetic sound, which is like score, which we can hear as the audience, but it's not in the movie world. Now, when we go underwater with the zombies, the drum and bass has underwater effects <laughs> on yeah. it, which means that it's diegetic sound, yeah. which means that supposedly in the weird logic of this world, when something exciting happens, drum and bass starts playing <laughs> in the world we're it. inhabiting. Oh my gosh, I love it. This is an, a sequence as well in which the boat guy is smoking a cigar and he's shooting zombies and it looks like he's kind of used to doing this. This is just part of his everyday uh, experience. And in this, not only do we find out the zombies can swim like people, <laughs> we also find out that everyone can do karate yes. and the zombies can use axes. <laughs> 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 at one point a zombie just comes running at them with an axe and also they have acid sick yes! yeah. so one of the zombies is sick on one of the characters that we're meant to care about and his skin just sort of goes all like horrible and burned and blotchy and just mm, like yeah. so they have acid sick they can also leap several meters oh yep. yeah um, they have these weird like launching themselves <laughs> forward there are no limits to what they can do, except yeah. for when it's very convenient. That they move slowly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I love the scene where he's shooting them from the boat. I think it's so cool. He's one of my favorite characters. Again, because he's like a video game character. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he is a video game character, but I like the like kitschiness of him. Yeah. Captain Kirk. Yeah. Just him and Liberty are the two. They're not trying to be real people. And that's why I like them. What's really funny, I've just noticed this, is that you guys love Liberty, right? And Liberty, yeah. so for example, like in the previous film, we had Burke and we don't like this character and he's called Burke and that might not be a thing in America, but that's like nominative, nominative determinism. The name mm. is based on something we're meant to believe about the character. Not necessarily in the case of Burke, but Liberty is called Liberty and is dressed up in all American stuff. Captain Kirk is like kind of like that's a traditional Yes. Boaty name. Uh, and so they've established this idea of nominative determinism in the world. Um, and then they have Rudolph. Yeah. Um, and who else is that? Greg. And so you have like some really interesting named characters, and then Greg. And Rudolph, that doesn't, there's no reason for him to be called Rudolph. No. Right? Also, when they're like approaching the boat for the big old fight fight sequence with the zombies and the swimming and the axe that you get your first look at them being stalked in the woods behind the trees by Emperor Palpatine from Star Wars. Yes. And he's just lurking in the woods and that's where you see him. But otherwise, I mean, we're basically just like at the point where just shit kicks off for like 12 minutes and that's oh the main, that's the movie. Oh my gosh, I love it. So Simon's been sprayed with the acid puke. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, at which point everybody's like, yep, these are definitely zombies. And Kirk is like, yep, that's why it's called Isla del Morte. I just copied this from Wikipedia because it made more sense on Wikipedia than it made in the film. <laughs> so Kirk reveals the island's history. Isla del Morte was home to a Spanish Catholic priest named Castillo Sermano, 
who was banished from Spain in the 15th century for his dark experiments, which the Catholic Church forbade. Castillo murdered the crew of St. Cristobal, the ship that was taking him to the island, enslaved the island's natives, and murdered anyone who visited the place. He then created the immortality serum, which he injected himself with, allowing him to live forever and return dead souls to life and support his cause. I might be misremembering this, but... Doesn't Kirk then say, but it's just a bunch of smugglers trying to scare people off? Yeah. Yeah, right. So he he's just spent a good five minutes shooting zombies in the head. <laughs> he doesn't believe he's it. told us the backstory, and then he goes, but it's just a bunch of smugglers trying to scare people off. And then we have a section. We then have a 12-minute, oh, sorry, no, five and a half minute, more conservative, montage of what I've called Guns Are Wonderful. <laughs> Um, I love this bit. So we have this whole like, look yeah. at all my guns. Yeah. I've got loads of guns. Yeah. What turns out to be in that box that they smuggled onto the island, loads of guns. Tons of loads guns. Of guns. Um, and then they have a five and a half minute montage killing zombies. Oh, it's long. Complete with that effect from the matrix where yes. the camera freezes and you spin yep. around um but it happens about like 20 times yes. yeah i've got written here after the five and a half minute montage of killing zombies there are two lines of dialogue and then there are two more minutes of killing zombies <laughs> then a character gets her legs ripped off whilst trying to get through a window <laughs> And she dies, so another character yeah. covers her body with a potato sack. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the character God. you're talking about that dies is Casper, the friendly Coast Guard woman. Yes. <laughs> they try for this like sentimental moment. He says something like, you saved everyone. She did not. Yeah, he covers her up. And I just thought it would be so funny if someone came in and thought she was a chair. <laughs> <laughs> Sit on her like a beanbag. Yeah. So obviously all this just bullshit is happening during this fight sequence. And it's just, it's whatever. It's just setting money on fire and that's fine. But then there's this bit I don't understand where Liberty dies and Rudolph is watching it. Mm. And it cuts to this like super stroby footage of like things we've seen before in yes. the fight scene. I actually really and like this. It looks like it's rewinding, and I yeah. thought we were going to get a video game device where you go back to a checkpoint, and I thought he ah. could, like, I thought he could, like, reset the game Just, that and be save fun? Liberty. But no, we watch all this shit happen. We watch, like, all the, the hindsight stuff, blah, 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 and it for no reason i don't get it i really liked the edit on that there's a really cool sound design in it it's a really interesting story trope it just doesn't do actually anything. do anything yeah you know? and that's the thing is like if if just just if they treated it more like a game if it had been more self-aware and taken itself a bit less seriously i think it could have been a lot of fun like spy kids 3d yeah, like spy kids 3d yeah. Yeah. exactly yeah. i think it could have been really fun i think people could have got enjoyment out of it in that way but it tried to be a real film air quotes so it ruined itself <laughs> tried and failed <laughs> so we watched the fight scene there's a shitload of gameplay footage and we're just setting money on fire casper gets her legs cut off we give her a burial in a potato sack it's about as dignified <laughs> as that is so now it's simon karma alicia rudy and kirk they're inside the house of the dead uh kirk is wounded badly and once the four others treat his injuries 
They all have little kisses in groups of two. So, <laughs> so Simon and Karma kiss. Rudy and Alicia kiss. And Kirk's just like... On the table bleeding out. Like yeah, basically. <laughs> and they choose this moment to just like all like split up and kiss a little bit like they're 13. Can we talk about... Can we talk about... Uh, okay. Um, Simon in one of the kissing scenes. Karma. Yeah, bring it. Go for it. Yeah. I mean, what, what are you going to say, Luke, okay, first? So, I mean, all, when I'm pr- presented with something like this... I often find the funniest way of describing something is just to describe it. Yes. Let the thing that's been made <laughs> speak for itself. Yes. And so I've written, and you, you then will bring your opinions on this, Dottie. Okay. One character... Now, Paddy, you've done a very good job of actually paying attention to what these names are because I haven't got a clue who anyone is. One character gets a big cut on one side of his face. And when the girl who he's kissing tries to help him he says i'm the fucking elephant man i'm a freak i belong in a circus even if i get out of here i'm finished now he's got like a gash on his cheek he's got a gash yeah. on his cheek that is covered by a bandage yes it will be fine yes it will um, be fine. yes he yeah so that character's a model right yeah that's okay that whatever makes slightly more sense. that's that's the smallest bit of justification, but not enough. So, like, he's, yeah, he's got his face burned by the, the stomach acid, I guess, yeah. of the zombie. Yeah. He then suggests that he might as well die. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he also suggests that she might as well die. <laughs> <laughs> <Does he> really? <laughs> yes. Dottie, you brought in the crucial information that he's a model, in which case there's a small amount of backstory well, to yes this. No, yes and no, yes and no. He's an underwear model. Yes. So he can, he can still do his job from the chin down, but still... <laughs> Karma might as well die at yeah. this point because Simon's lost his, yeah, Simon's lost his job. <laughs> I'm the fucking elephant man. I'm a freak. <laughs> I belong in a circus. So we then have a scene in which Sailor Man, who is dying, mm. yeah, goes outside. He sees Hook Man, yeah. Yeah. who's now a zombie. Yes. And because he knows he's dying, his mm. instinct is, I'm going to get some dynamite. Yeah. <laughs> so he gets his dynamite. And he wanders towards all the zombies and they all come around him and then he blows up. Yeah. Yeah, That's his. Um, Which is a perfectly normal thing to do. That's the move. By this point in the film, the two characters I was most interested in are dead. Salish, in his now zombie state, maintains his ability to whistle. He does. Right. And and which whistling, which songs he would normally whistle in his life. (laughs) Very lucky that. I know that he is whistling so that Kirk gets up and goes outside knowing who it's going to be. But it all, it feels more like, to me, like we're not going to recognize the guy in the yellow <laughs> raincoat with a hook for a hand. It's like reminding the audience, you haven't seen him in about 40 minutes. You might have forgotten who this guy is. That's a good point. I found it very strange that as well, because like yellow raincoat is a very standard film trope. Yeah. It's yeah. the film trope that you give to your main character. Right. Not necessarily yellow raincoat, but you give your main character or a character you're meant to notice and, and pay attention to some kind of distinctive clothing. Oh, so like right. you have that in, in Submarine, you have yeah. distinctive clothing. In the TV movie Dark, yeah. um, they have like yellow raincoat. Coraline? It's a very, uh, and Coraline, yeah. I think It as well, potentially. It's mm. a pretty standard thing for you to give to your main character. Not <laughs> for you to give to... <laughs> Because, like, I don't know any of the characters. I have no idea who anybody is other than 
Nordic Sailor Man. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Liberty. Yeah. Great. Yes. Wonderful yeah. characterization. I know exactly who she is. I know who, where she is in every <laughs> yeah. scene because she's dressed in the American flag. Yes. yes. And Hook Handed Man. <laughs> <laughs> I know where he is because yeah. he's in a bright yellow coat. But th- it's another one of these things like the naming conventions where mm-hmm. they're giving like specific standout names like Liberty and Captain Kirk and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. But they're giving them to characters that we don't necessarily have to pay attention no. to and then we're they're not giving characters who we are meant to pay attention to anything that makes any sense yeah there's nothing distinctive about rudolph no. except no. for the fact that his name is rudolph yeah. and then we don't find that out until the end of the film <laughs> i really try not to be overly critical or harsh especially as i'm only at the start of my career in this industry but like there's some things where it's just I'm lost for words. I don't understand. <laughs> I think several times in this podcast I've asked the question of like, have these people seen a film before? Right. Because you you pick up the general language of how <laughs> films communicate things to you. Yeah. yeah. For instance, the main character. <laughs> well, I think it's actually it, it's almost sometimes you get, especially early on in your career, it's almost like you you do get how films work mm. on the surface level. So you've watched films and you see the tropes that are obvious. And because you've seen the obvious surface level stuff, you haven't necessarily figured out the underlying stuff that is like the reason that decision might be made or um, like the meaning behind that decision. You've just sort of got a checklist of like, okay, some characters have names that are interesting and stand out. Some characters have clothing that is distinctive and not realized that, okay, well, you give characters names that you want the audience to remember or you give characters names that are subliminally indicative of the character's arc or something um, rather than just that name stood out a lot and that color looks really good on film <laughs> yeah. it's like it, it, it's 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 the surface yes. level and not necessarily <laughs> seeing the inferences behind that surface level where does he get this money from though I don't know. There's the documentary called Raging Ball, because his last name is Ball, and it's on YouTube. He is a German director living in Vancouver, Canada. He raises hundreds of millions of dollars to make make these films, and he's still directing. It's strange as well, because looking on the Wikipedia for this film, House of the Dead had a budget of $12 million, and it had a box office taking of $13.8 million. Yeah. That looks like a profit, but it's not a profit. Right. In terms of the way that film financing works, the way that you make money back, yes. that wouldn't be considered a successful film. Interesting. Because you need to make more, like much more than your budget back. Films take a long time to make. Yeah. If you've got $12 million to throw around, there's easy ways of turning that into more than $12 million. Right. Without doing a lot of work, without risking a lot of money. Uh-huh. If you've got that kind of money to throw around, it's not hard to make more money, is my point. So turning $12 million into $13.8 million over the course of several <laughs> years is not a particularly difficult feat. No. So that, that happened. And then they went and funded Alone in the Dark, which had a budget of $20 million and made $12 million. Right. Oh my gosh. So it lost yeah. money. He's probably having a great time. It maybe is a lot of fun on his sets. Maybe there are maybe. ways that these films make money and generate returns that aren't reflected on Wikipedia. Maybe the numbers are inaccurate. But forgive me if I feel a little <laughs> bit pissed off that this man's been given $20 million. <laughs> like, fuck frequently. Sake. <laughs> yeah, several More times than once. Oh There's so little movie left, and then we'll just compare the two because it, it's, it's so, it's going to be so much fun. So, I, sorry, I like how you say there's so little movie left. I have a two and a half pages of notes left. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Kirk blows himself up with a stick of dynamite, at which point 
who's left we've got simon karma rudy and alicia and they end up in this like mad scientist laboratory or something there's like body parts and jars of unidentified specimens just filling the room at which point they find a microscope um rudy inspects the sample within and he's just he just inexplicably knows that it's not human blood that it's <laughs> mutated that it's completely unnatural and that it's fucking genius <laughs> now my favorite line of this scene um i've got it's another one of these brilliant moments where you just let the script do the talking yeah. you don't have to add <laughs> any comment my favorite line of this scene is let's look at this book it looks pretty old maybe it can help us <laughs> Then they leave the room and don't take the book. Oh, my God. (laughs) All right. So they go back into the room where Casper had her legs cut off. And Simon just gets wrecked by zombies at this point. But not before he fires one single bullet into a barrel of gunpowder, resulting in a huge explosion. Rudy, Alicia, and Karma, they get kind of blown back by this explosion only so that karma can die almost immediately afterwards at the hands of like some moss zombies. And we've never seen those before. So that's fun. Yeah, it's okay. She didn't have anything to live for according to Simon. So, <laughs> so she's dead, but Greg's alive. Greg's back. Yeah. And he's wearing like a cape, Um, except it's not Greg. It's just Emperor Palpatine, AKA Castillo Sermano wearing Greg's face. I've got a perfect summary of this, which is, and then they get rescued by Zorro. (laughs) (laughs) It's their friend Greg, but he's wearing a mysterious cloak and refuses to talk to them. Then it turns out not to be Zorro or Greg. It's the king of the zombies wearing Greg's face as a skin mask. And he wants their flesh. But they escape. They go outside and it's now daytime. I think that's a really important thing you're missing here, Patty, which is Mm. that they escape, um, but they drop yet another grenade on this Zorro (laughs) man who wears Greg's face's skin as a mask. Explosion happens. And this king of the zombies, he survives because he can't die. So he comes up to the surface. It's daytime now, as you said. Yeah. And then he wants to have a sword fight. And luckily, she does fencing. <gasps> this is like the perfect example of you. Like you get to page 100 in your script and you're like, shit, I need something to get them out of here. <laughs> yeah. So you go back to page three and yeah. you just go like, and we broke up because I was studying and she wanted to practice fencing. Yes. Cool, back to page 100. Now they have a sword fight. Brilliant. This wound, the final wound right. that she receives. Oh, yeah. Just right between the breasts, yeah. right through the sternum, <laughs> sternum presumably yeah. into her lungs. Yeah. We think she's dead for a while. Yeah. Until it's very convenient that she's not. Yeah, she falls <laughs> to the ground. Rudolph gets up and he just like decapitates this motherfucker just like slices his head clean off with an axe this is my favorite moment in this entire film which is when emperor palpatine his headless body still controlled by his lonely head resting on the dirt floor locks rudy into like a stranglehold both his hands are wrapped around his neck there's a headless man choking this guy yeah and it's great but alicia's still alive and she drives her foot right through the dead guy's head making him more dead it's really it's quite grim actually the the scene of his head exploding yeah after it, she like, treads on his it. eyes like shoot out of his eye sockets yeah. it's it's gross so 
so, it. Anyway. But yeah. here we go. So this is the end of the film. So the CIA or whoever, they show up. And then in the last couple lines of the film, we find out that Rudy's full name is Rudolph Curian. Do you remember at the start of this film, I was telling you that it's the only gameplay footage with dialogue. She says, you have to stop Curian or else something bad will happen. So this uh. whole thing is a prequel to the video game series. And he becomes oh, he's the, the infamous bad guy, which is why they withhold his name the entire film. And then what he says in the final bit of narration is that he and Alicia, he like in a moment of desperation gave Alicia and himself the immortality <gasps> serum, which is why she survived. No way, really? Yeah, yeah, what we see is we see him coming back out of the, uh, the downstairs place. Because he says something like, whatever she's become. Exactly. Because he gave her no the zombie way. immortality serum. Because she's been stabbed. So like, yeah. as long as she can survive for like 10 minutes and successfully prevent his death at yeah. the hands of a headless zombie. So they withhold this guy's name because Curian is the name of the villain in the video game franchise. But that's why we care so little about the main character all the way through this movie, just for that, just for that device. And I'm like, who the fuck cares? It's a real testament to how much, back in the day, they believed in the idea of the power of a fandom of a, yeah. of a mm -hmm. film. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. you would not understand this film if you hadn't played the game. Of course yeah. not. And that's such a niche audience. Yeah. And that does seem to be, because he's done these two... I don't know how many other game tie-in films he's done. Yeah. But mm -hmm. it's almost like maybe the reason why it doesn't matter too much about how much money he makes is because they're, they're tying into a franchise. And as long mm -hmm. as the franchise continues to make money, it doesn't really matter if the film makes money because it's, it's about getting people's attachment to the franchise to be continually yes. profitable. Which did you prefer and why? Or if not prefer, which is the better film and why? I significantly preferred Alone in the Dark. Sure. I don't know whether that's because that's the one I watched first and my tether for putting right. up with a bad film <laughs> was rather short by the end of House in the Dark as the dead. <laughs> I found it less painful. Sure. Props to him. He progressed, in my opinion, from 2003 go. to 2005. What about you guys? I thought that this one was better because I found it more entertaining. Entertaining in a good way or in a bad way? No, no. I mean, none of these films are entertaining in a good way. None of them. <laughs> I think because I could see how it could be good in my head, that sort of redeemed in some way how bad it was. I prefer House of the Dead by the smallest margin. I prefer House of the Dead because I believe it is the worst movie of the two. I prefer it because it's worse. I prefer it. I prefer it because it is like the catastrophic yet endearing failing of people just trying to make a film. Whereas with Alone in the Dark, there's more money. There's more hands to hold. There's qualified actors. There's special effects, whereas with this, there is just nothing to hide behind. And it's just what you see is all they had. <laughs> yeah, but and all they had, Patty, was $12 million. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I, I don't believe that you, like, sure, there's more hands to hold, but there's more hands from $12 million to $20 million, <laughs> Yeah, Not sure. more hands from, like, 
30 grand to 20 million. Like yeah. there's no excuse for either of these. No, no I, think, I think you're right. For whatever reason, the difference is only $8 million. Alone in the Dark is polished. And when mm. you set the money on fire, it looks good while it burns. But House of the Dead is just ugly and messy <laughs> and fun. I think that's the thing. House of the Dead is fun. It's more fun. Nothing yeah. about Alone in the Dark was fun. I didn't have fun watching that movie. Not for a second. It just makes me sad. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me so sad yeah. knowing how, not only how it's always going to be a struggle to get films produced and mm. to get films made and get money for films, but also in a more wide sense, there's a lot of problems in the world that $20 million could fix yeah. or go some way towards fixing. Even if it's like $20 million budget, $12, $13 million profit, there's $7 million lost there. Yeah. $7 million could do a lot of stuff. I could make a lot of films for $7 million. I could make the film I've made 28 times. Oh my gosh. <laughs> 30 times, actually. More than 30 times oh my gosh. for the amount of money that is. And that just makes me so angry. <laughs> it makes me so angry knowing how much work I put into something. Yeah. And this angry man who just made a video <laughs> going, fuck you to the platform Kickstarter for not making his dreadful films get automatic funding. Like, you entitled little shit. Oh, I hope I you it. challenge me to a boxing match. <laughs> Fuck you. This is the only thing that makes me sad is that there is a demographic like myself who love bad movies. And these are films based on video games. And that in itself is a whole demographic like of, you know, Silent Hill became a film um, and Assassin's Creed became a film or whatever. Like there's a demographic. But the demographic for these games and films based on video games fucking hate these films yeah well i mean you saw the rotten tomatoes That's score true. and i have seen <laughs> the reviews i've seen the people in the boxing ring with this director it's like <laughs> and it's like I, I don't believe that you know a film has to be critically acclaimed for it to be a good film because it's like it's bringing joy to so many people this brought so little joy <laughs> to so few people of <laughs> these films everyone hates them well he's a multiple award winner uh for the golden raspberry award for worst director the only the only trivia i copied over about the boxing matches were he boxed a 30-year-old journalist. He challenged Quentin Tarantino. He did. did he? Yeah, and yeah. Michael Bay and Eli Roth. Oh he, my he's, gosh. he's quite an unhinged guy. He challenged a bunch of journalists, but then he one of the people that he boxed was a 17-year-old web, web blogger. blogger and amateur boxer. <laughs> As for what the reviews say, Dottie, I had a couple of screenshots oh, here. Oh, yes. Um, the, the, the consensus on Rotten Tomatoes says... <laughs> inept on almost every level. <laughs> he was described as being the schlock maestro. And I looked up what schlock means and it means cheap or inferior goods. <laughs> in a review of Alone in the Dark, Rob Vow states that the movie makes other bad movie directors feel better in comparison. Quote, it's okay, they tell themselves. I didn't make Alone in the Dark. <laughs> He received the Worst Career Achievement Award at the 29th Golden Raspberry Awards. A petition online asking him to retire received <laughs> oh one million gosh. signatures. No. Yeah. 
So those are just some of the feedback I found online. And props to him. If he was making a career trying to make films that people would generally consider to be good, he would do that badly and he wouldn't make a career. That's Maybe true. he's just like... He's figured it out. He's figured it out. Yeah. And he's probably having a wonderful time. Although he does seem to have quite a lot of anger he issues. He really so. does, yes. <laughs> well, that's those that's, films. That's those films. And Luke, thank you so much for joining us on uh, the podcast. Thank, thank you, you guys for putting me through that. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no, I had a great time. Honestly, though, one of those films being on a reputable streaming service, having been purchased, gave me an awful lot of confidence in my future. <laughs> I was like, oh, when I'm ready with my film, I'm going to go to these companies and I go, you've paid money <laughs> for this. You give me some bloody money for my thing better than that. Otherwise, you have no integrity and I will go to the press. <laughs> Do you want to shout out any of your any of your socials, any of your projects? My socials are all at Luke Cutforth. I'm sure you can figure out how to spell that. <laughs> I've been making a film for five years. Um, I hope it's better than either of these films, <laughs> uh, which is saying something as it's my first film. And I watched it when I was 22. So, you know, yeah. feeling pretty good about my future. Yeah. Whenever that comes out, I would love for everyone to enjoy it and let me know how it is. Yeah. I value the feedback, even though I'm not going to make myself worth around the feedback. Um, but, uh, Will you yeah, challenge I, I anyone great. to a boxing match or more topically like a swimming race? because <laughs> 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 of Arthur Bryson yeah, yeah very good um well I wouldn't accept a boxing match challenge because I know I'd lose <laughs> and I'm very happy to admit that but I would very happily challenge somebody to a direct off if anyone sees something <laughs> and they great. really hate it and they want to challenge me to, to to actually compete in the field that we are judging yes which is not boxing <laughs> it's making things that are enjoyable yeah. i'll compete in that that's fine yeah. not in a separate field that has nothing to do with the thing that i that someone's claiming i'm bad at <laughs> it's like if someone criticized your drawing and then you literally were like okay let's have a boxing match <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for being on here oh thanks guys this is absolutely wonderful so those were some movies they were some movies. And they were fun. I enjoyed uh, talking about them with our good friend Luke, and I enjoyed watching them. Uh, but tomorrow is the finale of this podcast. It already, is. And it's one of my favorite movies ever. To roll two. From 1990. And it's going to be so much fun. And we cannot wait to be spending Halloween with you guys. Uh, so please tune in. Please keep yourselves safe, and we will see you tomorrow.